Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. This is the word of the Lord. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. It's one of uh, Mark Twain's, maybe, maybe a bit lesser known uh, stories. Uh, it's, and it's, it's a weird one if you don't know the, don't know the tale. Basically, it's about this, this 19th century American from Connecticut uh, who gets uh, mysteriously transported into the medieval world of, of King Arthur. And, and, and eventually he's, he's there and he becomes one of the advisors to, to King Arthur and all that. And, and he, at one point, he convinces the king to go and like, like dress up in peasant clothes and you know, travel among his kingdom, right? To see what his subjects really need and, and to get a feel of what life is, is, is really like. And it, it's mostly ridiculous, right? In true Mark Twain fashion. Uh, but it's also, I mean, it's kind of a common story, isn't it? I mean, whether, whether it's this one in particular or, or others that you can think of, I mean, this, this idea of, of someone of, of power, of importance, of influence somehow lowering themselves, becoming ordinary. Like these kinds of stories, they draw us in, don't they? And let me, just, let me just say, one of the most shocking things that we Christians believe is that our God did this. That our God became ordinary. I mean, we Christians believe some you know, difficult things, right? I mean, I, I believe in, in Christianity, and, and in fact, I believe that it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to believe in God. And I'm not talking about, about proof. None of us have proof for the things that we believe, but I, I believe that the rational evidence points to Jesus. But that doesn't make it easy. I need me to believe that, that God is Trinity, three in one, that, that this book is his word that a previously dead guy came back to life. Those are hard to believe, but I could top it. The hardest thing that we believe is that our God became human, that he became one of us in order to rescue us. I mean, this was so challenging that early on, I mean, the, the first Christians, those, those who knew Jesus, who met him, all the gospel writers and, and those around, they, they believed it. They said, yes, he's, he's God and he's man. But a couple hundred years later, this was one of the biggest challenges in the early church. Because those who hadn't met Jesus and they, they had these, these writings, they, they kept trying to figure it out and they would, they would go in one of, one of two directions. They'd either say, yes, he's God, he's absolutely God, but come on, he wasn't really a man. He, he was, he was man-like, right? He looked like a man, but surely he couldn't have been both. Or, or they'd go in the other direction. Yes, he was, he was man, of course he was, but he's not, he's not God. He's a God or, or God-ish, right? But not, not both. And yet, friends, at the very heart of Christmas, at the very center of everything you and I believe, if you're a Christian, our God is both. For he became one of us to rescue us. 
And this, this shocking little truth, I mean, it, it never gets old. I mean, Christmas after a while, let's be honest, okay? I mean, it's still fun, right? We got, we got a week left, but by, by, by 12.26, like, I'm ready to just put it back in the box, right? Be done with it. But this, this truth, this reality, it, it never gets old. That our God became one of us to rescue us. Turn to, to John chapter 1. So this, this Advent, we've been looking at how, how John tells the, the Christmas story. He, he skips over the shepherds and, and, and the wise men, and he gives us the, the cosmic story, like the story behind the story. And, and you, may not, you may not believe what John says, but you can't help, like even, in, even if you are sort of skeptical about the truth claims of John, like you can't help but believe John believes it, Right? John takes this stuff really seriously. And, and we're going to unpack this, this idea that our God became one of us to rescue. We're going to unpack it with three, three strange truths. First, that our God has a body. Second, that our God belongs on planet Earth. And third, that our God gives us what we want most. It's bizarre. It's a lot of work cut out for us. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump into these things. God... We need your help to believe this. Um, the, thought, the thought that you are God, the one who exists outside of, of time and space, the one who made everything, the thought that you could become ordinary like us, human, it's too much. And so would you expand our imagination, help us in, in moments of great mystery and wonder, help us to believe and help us here to find great joy. For in this truth is our rescue. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so first, first off, our God has a body. And that, I mean, again, that, that's unthinkable, right? But it, it is what John says. We're kind of used to that. You know, if you've been, been around church and you're like, I was like, it feels normal. But like, just no other religion or worldview could say such a thing. I mean, when, when Muhammad comes, he points to Allah, right? When, when Buddha comes, he points to this noble path. Only Jesus, when he comes, points to himself. Start, start with verse 1. Still, John chapter 1. Let me read verse 1 again. This is where we began a couple weeks ago. Remember, John says, in the beginning was the Word. That's his nickname for Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, he goes on, he says that he's the creator, the, the word, the beginning and the end, the, that Jesus, he is fully God. John believed that. The early disciples believed that. A couple weeks ago, we talked a little bit about Trinity, right? That our God in all, all mystery, right, is three in one. And, and the New Testament writers, they all agree, yes, Jesus is God. But he also has a physical ordinary human body. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh, which is exactly what it sounds like, right? Right? Bones and muscles, tissues and 
ligaments and skin. The creator, the one who made everything, became a handful of cells swimming in his mother's womb. That our God experienced the the struggle and mess of childbirth. He had a mom. She burped God. (laughs) Fed God. Changed God's diapers. Our, Our God cried. Learned how to eat solid food. Crawled on the ground. Learned to walk. Learned to read. Skinned his knees. Played with other kids. Our God went through puberty. Our God got hungry, tired, thirsty. He hurt, bled, got blisters, got sweaty. Had to take bathroom breaks between miracles and sermons. He felt the sting of betrayal and rejection, the the sorrow of grief and loneliness, the power of temptation and the tragedy of despair. He felt the whip tear away his flesh. The nails pierce through his real hands. The sword enter his side. Our God even knows what it feels like to die. And when he came up out of the ground alive, he did so with a body. And when he ascended into heaven, he did so with a body. And now, even now, Jesus at the right hand of the Father has a body. And if this makes you uncomfortable, well, good, right? I mean, it should. This is, I mean, it's it's too much, isn't it? Like, this this is deeply unsettling to imagine a God so humble, so fragile, and so ordinary. But if our king hadn't done this, there could be no rescue for us. But why? Why, why, does, why does it matter so much that our God has a body? Only, only a God with a body can rescue us from our sin. Let me explain that. If you, if you want forgiveness, a human God is the only way. Because here's the deal. Only, only man can be punished for man's sins. Like Adam and Eve, right? They, the first humans, they blew it. And every, every human after... And so the, the debt is ours as humans, right? The penalty belongs to us, to you and to me. And forget, forgiveness is never, is never free. There's always a cost when we forgive someone. And because the punishment of our sins, for our sins, is death, the only way our God could forgive is through death, through the shedding of blood. It is we humans who earn the punishment And it is we humans who must die. And so Jesus had to be human. It's the only way God could could die for us. And yet, yet no mere human is possibly strong enough, right? I couldn't die for the sins of the whole world. No way. Only God could do that. Only God can take the full weight of his own wrath upon himself. Only God can bear an eternity's worth of hell upon himself on the cross. Only God can save. And so Jesus had to be God. And so the only possibility for you and me to be rescued from our sin 
the, the ultimate curse upon us, right? And, and death that comes with it. The only way we could be rescued from our sin is through the God-man, Jesus Christ. That our God became one of us to rescue us. But that's not the, that's not the only weird thing we see here. We also see as John continues that our God belongs on planet earth. You heard that right. I said belongs, which is it's a little weird, right? That he, he belongs here. So uh, as, as a family, uh, we, we just uh, finished watching uh, Wild Alaska on Netflix, like this documentary. And ne- next up for us is Planet Earth. I don't know if you watch this. It's, it's on Netflix now. So we're going to watch it as the kids, right? And it, uh, with the kids. And it has episodes on like different regions of, of the planet. Like, so there's one on the oceans and one on the mountains and one on the plains. And I mean, it's just unbelievable if you've not, if you've not seen it. Um, and and I've, I've watched much of it and I've never sat there thinking, I mean, I think it's beautiful. It's amazing. God made this. But I've never sat there thinking, like, God belongs there with his creatures. But John would. John absolutely would. In fact, look, at, look again at verse, at verse 14. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that our, our God you know, moves into the neighborhood, which, listen, which has been his plan from the very beginning. Let me me try to explain, because the whole Bible, uh, and and really the whole of the human experience, can be summarized in four movements, four chapters, right? Creation, fall, redemption, and and new creation. That's that's the story of of everything. And and in creation, like when God created us, like he did so to be with us, right? And, And Adam and Eve, they were with God, and God was with them somehow there mysteriously in the garden, that that was... That was God's plan. It was to be here with us. But if you know the story, right? We rebelled against God. We basically said we wanted to see other people. Uh, and God, he kicks us out, right? God's not into an open marriage, right? And so because of that, our, our rejection, the, the world fell apart and, and sin and brokenness entered in. And, and yet immediately God sets into plan a motion to redeem us, right? To, to pursue us, like to, to, to move back in together, essentially. That, that, that's been his, his heart. And you see that in the Old Testament right away with like the, the idea of the tabernacle or the, the temple. Like God's presence with his people, even in, in a small way. And the tabernacle was like a kind of tent of God's, of God's presence. In fact, what's interesting here is, is John, uh, the word that John uses here for dwelt among us, it literally means God pitched his tent, which I personally love the idea of God camping, by the way. Um, I'm not crazy, okay? I love that. But, but literally, I mean, it's the idea of, that God has, like, he's made his tabernacle with us, not with a tent this time, but with skin and flesh and bone, with, with Jesus. That's, that's the idea there. Which is why Jesus is called Emmanuel, which translates God with us. And today, God continues to dwell with his people through his spirit, right? He he dwells through his people through his church, together, individually and collectively, that we we are mysteriously a temple in which God dwells, right? And yet we know it's it's incomplete, but the story's not done. 
At, at the end of the story, in, in new creation, we see that, that God's plan is, it will come to, to fruition. Like, it'll, it'll happen. God will remake this earth. And this same John, who's writing this gospel, he writes a, another book called Revelation. It's a weird one, but it kind of gives this picture of the end of all things. And the picture that John paints there is that heaven and earth one day become one. That heaven comes down and, and joins with earth somehow, and, and it's, it's, it's new. Look, look what he says in, in Revelation 21. John writes, he says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The story of the Bible from beginning to end is the story of a God who will be with his people. And we don't, what's so amazing is we don't, we don't go off to live with him. He comes here to live with us. From Genesis to Revelation and seen most clearly in Jesus Emmanuel. The goal Think about this. The goal of every other religion is to escape this world, right? To one day be done with it, to be free from the shackles, to, to somehow like cease to, to, to like leave behind our physical bodies and to become something other somewhere off in the distance. Not us. That's not our story. For our God has a body and he belongs on planet earth. Well, what, is, what does that mean? What are the implications of this? There's, there's a lot, right? But, but at the very least, it means not only do we have rescue from our sin, we have rescue from our futility. Because if this, if this is the story of humanity, if this is the story of God, then like, it means everything matters. If God has a body and he has a plan to bring heaven to earth, it means Everything matters. Nothing is futile. Everything is sacred. That your, your body, even, is sacred. And what, we, what you do with it matters because God has a body. The material world around you matters. It's not, all, it's not all just going to burn. Make sure God will purify and restore and rebuild. There's a lot of mess he's got to clean up. But friends, his plan is here so what you do today matters. Your work matters. Your families matter. Your relationships matter. Your hobbies matter. Everything matters. Nothing is merely temporary or secular. Everything is sacred. Everything has purpose from beginning to end. Which, which gives me... On the one hand, profound hope, like that this life counts and that God is going to do something better with it, but also, friends, it also gives me profound comfort because it also means this idea that God, he knows what it's like on planet earth. It means he, he knows the mess that we live in. It means that there is nothing you and I can face, nothing that he doesn't understand because he's lived it. And again, no, no other God can say that. I mean, for example, I could, um, I could study all the theories in the world of what it, 
feels like to be pregnant. Just bear with me, okay? Um, I could become an OBGYN. Uh, no thanks, by the way. Um, but let's just say, right? I, and I could, I could become, you know, one of the great experts on this subject. But if I were to walk up to somebody nine months pregnant, about to pop, you know, you know who you are. <laughs> or, or next, next to your like delivery room bed in the worst part of labor, and say to you, "There, there, hun. I know what it's like." Like you would punch me in the face, right? And rightfully so. There, there is a world of difference between understanding the theory of something and actually experiencing it. And only we as Christians, only with this God, can we say that our God knows. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to feel pain. He knows what it's like to be disappointed by others and to feel the weight of other people's sins. Only our God knows. He's felt it. Rejection, loneliness, temptation, betrayal, frustration at work, the grief of loss, the agony of our broken bodies. He's felt it. I mean, I've shared with you before um, that just part of, my, part of my story is kind of this low-grade depression. It's just part of me. It's, I'm not complaining. It's just part of who I am. Um, and, and a few months ago, I was working on another sermon, and I remembered that one of Jesus' nicknames, Isaiah gives it, to, gives it to him, is Man of Sorrows. I can't tell you what that means to me. It doesn't fix anything. Like, I'm not, I'm not magically better. But just knowing that he knows, experientially, that he's felt it, makes all the difference in the world. It's rescue from my futility. Because not only does he know what it's like, because of his plan for, for new creation, right, he also knows how to make it better, to rescue us from our futility. He became one of us. Our God has a body. Our God belongs here with us. Finally, Finally, what we see here with John is that our God gives us what we want most. What we want most. And maybe you don't see that there as you, as you heard the text being read. Uh, but what, what is it you want? I mean, the older, the older I get, the more convinced I am you and I are glory seekers. Like, that's what we want. An experience of, of glory, of something, something incredible. That's, that's what we're all hoping for for Christmas, right? I mean, glory, glory is the idea of, of beauty, goodness, mystery, wonder, joy, meaning, transcendence, right? It's something like worthwhile, right? Heavy. And we chase after it in family and sex and nature and food and, you know, the next Netflix original, uh, and success and vacation and stuff and relationships and sports, right? We just, we're, we're always chasing. And yet they never quite satisfy. It's like eating a donut for breakfast. It's good for like a minute, right? And then you just you crave more. 
And that's what these things do for us. And, and yes, we could explain it with, it could be nothing more than brain chemistry. I mean, I get it. It could be nothing more than the genetic remnants of instinct, survival instinct left over from my long dead ancestors. Or it could be because we are made for glory. We're, we're made for that, that transcendence, that beauty, that joy, that meaning. And there's something in us that, that cries out for me. We won't be satisfied until we, until we get some. And look what John says. Again, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skip down to verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then listen to what he says, how he kind of wraps this up. He says, no one, no one has ever seen God. And yet, and yet the only God who is at the Father's side... It's Jesus. He has made him known. And so what John is saying, I mean, it's, it's only by grace that we can experience this glory. It's only by grace that our God can, can live with us, dwell with us. It's only by grace that we can experience this glory and live. In fact, as John is, is writing this, it's almost certain that he's, he's thinking back to this, this time with Moses. He even mentions Moses, right? Uh, that Moses, I mean, it's a strange, a strange story. Moses, he wanted to see God, right? I mean, he got the burning bush thing, but he, want, he wanted more than that. And Moses was also a glory seeker. And, and God in that moment is like, Moses, like, no. Like, you can't handle it. It's gonna, it'll kill you if, you, if you if you see me. If you see that much glory. But here's what I'll do, Moses. I'll let you see just a little, little tiny bit, right? And here John says that in Jesus we have seen it and lived. I mean, sure, he says no one, no one has ever seen God, meaning the Father, and yet in Jesus we have. Friends, you are searching for glory. Transcendence meaning joy. And you and I, we will look anywhere and everywhere. But you're not going to find it under the tree. You're not going to find it even in the most meaningful moment with family or friends, even if everything's just perfect. It's only with Jesus that we experience this kind of glory, the, the glory that we long for. So it's, only, it's only here that we get rescue from this ceaseless longing. Because this, this is what your heart longs for. Uh, it's what your heart was made for. And on Christmas, God gives us himself. For he became one of us to rescue us. From our sin, from our futility, and from our, our ceaseless longing. And really the only thing left for us at this moment is to worship. And I don't, I don't mean just, you know, sing a few songs and go on our merry way. Like, worship. Like, if this is who our God is, than to build our lives for worship, for, for love and service and, and goodness and obedience and, and to trust and all of that, right? For he became one of us. You know, this is even where Mark Twain goes, essentially, in his, his Connecticut Yankee. 
Because as, as King Arthur, you know, dresses like this peasant and he, you know, makes his way around. And again, it's mostly ridiculous. Uh, but at one point he enters into the house of, of a beggar. And he's quickly discovered that there in that beggar's home is, is smallpox. Which right in the ancient world is like almost certain death. Highly contagious, absolutely dreaded and feared. And there's, there's a, a young girl who's about to die. And the boy, the boy who traveled there from the modern world, he, he looks on, and what he sees in his lowly king is unmistakable glory. But it's not the normal glory of a king. L- listen to how he describes it. He says, There was a slight noise from the direction of the dim corner where the ladder was. It was the king descending. I could see that he was bearing something in one arm. He came forward into the light. Upon his chest lay a slender girl dying of smallpox. Here was heroism at its last and loftiest possibility, its utmost summit. This was challenging death in the open field, unarmed with all the odds against the challenger. He was great now, sublimely great The rude statues of his ancestors in his palace should have an addition, and it would not be a king in armor killing a giant or a dragon like the rest. This statue would be of a king in commoner's garb, bearing death in his arms. Friends, this is our story, isn't it? Except our, our king doesn't just dress like a commoner, he actually became one. And he doesn't just expose himself or sympathize with our greatest disease, sin and death. He actually allowed himself to be infected by it all on the cross, bearing the weight of all of our sin, facing death so we don't have to ultimately. He doesn't just risk his life. He gives his life. Our God became like you to rescue you. Respond accordingly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is a truth too grand to even contemplate. And so we say thank you. I pray that this truth would go with us this week as we celebrate in the midst of all the the fun or heartache, the joys or the chaos, that we remember in all of it that you have become one of us. Give us hope here, we pray. Help us to delight in you and to worship you now. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Sometimes I'm sure you've been in that situation where in moments of, of, of pain and sorrow and anguish, the two most comforting words we can hear is someone just saying, me too, I, or, or I get it. And, and, and the, the, the beauty of, of the Christmas story is that our God, in most profound ways, is able to say to us in a real experiential way, I get it, me too, I know your pain because I became your pain. I know your shame because I became your shame. That is the hope and the joy and the comfort we find in this Christmas story. And so I I hope you have found comfort in that. 
And so as we, as we continue uh, to worship, as we leave this place, as the church gathered to be the church scattered, I wanted to, to read this benediction from the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews who, who captures the essence of God incarnate in the person of Jesus. Uh, but before I share that again, I just wanted to say thank you for, for being here and worshiping with us. Uh, if you have not uh, thought about inviting a friend or family member to our Christmas Eve services next week, we invite you to do that. Uh, we have some, some little in- invitation cards out in the back lo- uh, lobby. Grab one, grab a stack if you want to share with friends. But it's been a joy to be with you. But, but hear these words as we leave this place to be the church scattered that God has called us. Find comfort in the truth that God has become one with us. Since then, brothers and sisters, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in light of that truth, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is the good news of Christmas. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great week.